chapter 9. It says verses 1 through 5. I think I might want to read more than that. Maybe even the whole of chapter 9. I'll read at least until I feel the point has been made. Romans chapter 9, hear God's word. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience, conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed, uh, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is those who are children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles. Just skipping down to verse 30 and concluding the chapter in that way. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Let us pray together. 
Holy Father, we come now to your word and we acknowledge once more that you set before us a deep, a, a deep mystery of which we long to know as much as we may. We don't want to pry into the hidden secrets. We only wish to know that which is revealed to us. We pray, O oh God, you might indeed reveal it to us little by little through the preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. We've concluded now one major section, and we are uh, moving on to another. The major section in chapters 5 through 8 concerns the doctrine of assurance. What is true of those who have been justified by faith? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with, peace with God, and so on. And so the thought goes to the end of chapter 8. Having been justified by faith, we have this unshakable, invincible, unmovable assurance that we shall at last be glorified and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And having concluded that as triumphantly, I think, as anyone possibly could, Paul moves on now to a new major section, namely chapters 9 through 11. These are, I feel confident in saying, some of the most loved as well as some of the most hated chapters in the Bible. Therefore, they are also some of the most misunderstood. Uh, Might I even note that they are, for many, some of uh, the chapters which are, they are most reluctant to expound or to deal with. Well, let me tell you that I have no reluctance in preaching these chapters. I'm excited to do so, but I am aware of the difficulties which are before us. And I wonder for many of you whether this will be the first time in your life that you've ever had a detailed study of these verses and of these chapters. Let me say this, that what little I've done so far, I've had to work hard. And that if you want to understand these chapters, you're going to have to work hard. These chapters are not easy to understand. I'm reminded of what Peter says about Paul, and I think these Verses especially apply to these chapters. Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. These things are hard to understand, and thus we have to be especially careful, lest we become unstable and twist these things to our own destruction, or lest we listen to those who are unstable. Let us be very careful with the doctrines which are set forth before us here. It is clear, and I've been alluding to this throughout uh, the service and my prayers, this is the, the big impression that these three chapters have had upon me The Apostle Paul is revealing a mystery about which many Christians were and are ignorant. He says so in verse 25 of chapter 11. I think that perhaps is the best thesis statement, if I could put it that way, of the whole section. He says, I do not, or purpose statement would be better. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Here is a mystery, a deep mystery being revealed. Here is high 
theology, high Calvinism, we could say. Uh, sometimes people are referred to that, that way. They say, you know, I'm a high Calvinist. I think I'm becoming more and more comfortable with calling myself a high Calvinist. I think Paul here is a high Calvinist. If you don't know what that means, just listen on in the weeks to come. I think you'll learn what it means. The trouble, again, is that so many Christians are ignorant. And if there is one ignorant of this high theology, ignorant of God, his purpose, his ways, his plan, his plan for you, his plan for the Jews, his plan for history, And as a result of this ignorance, we are deeply impoverished. You remember how Paul closes the whole section. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor, who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Now, that in itself tells us that. We are standing on holy ground. We want to know the thing that made Paul say that. We don't just want to be able to say it with him. We want to know the thing that made him say it. We want to behold this mystery. We want to believe it. We want to know it in so far as we are able. That is the purpose of these three chapters. Not that we would be puffed up with pride, as Paul warns in that chapter as well. Chapter 11, verse 18. But in order that we might praise God and glory in his ways. And have faith in the future. So the best procedure, it seems to me, in unfolding these admittedly difficult chapters is to consider broadly what is before us. To look in a broad overview of the three chapters and what is the first sermon. And then we will begin to look at the verses in detail. The first and most obvious question is, what is the purpose of these chapters? Well, I've already said in one sense it is to uh, it, it is to unfold the mystery in order that we might be able to praise God as Paul did. Uh, but another way to ask the question, what is the purpose of this new section, is to consider its connection or its relation with the broader argument that Paul is making. At first glance, the end of chapter eight, again, you remember who shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. That ending seems to flow seamlessly into chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1 reads thus. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And on he goes. As you know, chapter 12 through chapter 15 comprise the exhortation of the epistle and then, or the application. And then chapter 16 deals with uh, concluding greetings. And so... It is often put like this. Chapters 1 through 8 comprise the doctrine. Chapters 12 through 15, the exhortation. That is the traditional Pauline pattern. Yielding the major structure of Romans as justification by faith alone, chapters 1 through 8, followed by application in chapters 12 and following. Leading to the question, what is Paul doing in chapters 9 through 11, if that's the major structure? And many have suggested because of this that chapters 9 through 11 form a kind of digression or parenthesis in the major argument. Something that is not germane, but is secondary to the main point which he is making. Nevertheless, a point which he wished to entertain. Now, this would not be without precedent, not even within uh, Paul's letter, this letter. 
For we've already seen that chapters 6 and 7 are a kind of parenthesis in the major section, chapters 5 through 8. In chapters 5 and 8, Paul sets forth the doctrine. In 6 and 7, he deals with objections. It would be possible to look at it this way. Or we could say that Paul, having dealt with justification, the main theme of the epistle, moves on to deal with another theme. A secondary theme, but one which nevertheless was important in the mind of Paul, and that is the theme of predestination. So justification chapters 1 through 8, predestination chapters 9 through 11. But according to this view, there is little or no connection with those chapters and what precedes. He's simply moving on to something else. Men so great as Hodge and Haldane, who wrote two of the great commentaries on Romans, argue for this in their commentaries. It's also what I would call the common or the popular view today. It's the one that I have been uh, most familiar with in popular Christianity. Now, Paul simply moves on and he just asks the question, what of the Jews? Or he, he wants to deal with the subject of predestination. But it isn't presented as part of the main argument. But there's a better way, I think, to look at this. Seeing chapters 9, 10, and 11 as concluding the theological section begun in chapter 1 and which precede the exhortation or application in chapter 12. Not something that is secondary, but something that is essential to what the apostle has been arguing for. And this view, I would, uh, I would claim the authority of the two main sources that I'm using. If you ask me, Pastor, where are you getting this? I wonder if some of what I'm going to tell you, in the, in, even in the sermon, will sound strange to you. You say, where are you getting this? Well, I'm getting this from Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Murray, the, the, the same main two sources I've been using all along. So at the very least, understand I'm not making this up. They suggest, well, let me read a quote from each of them. John Murray says this. He says, it is only as we fail to discern or overlook the relation that these chapters sustain to the thesis of this epistle that any thought or of irrelevance or discontinuity is entertained. You see, any man, he says, who is suggesting something new is being suggested here has totally missed the thesis of the epistle. On closer inspection, he goes on, this part of the epistle is seen to bring to climactic vindication the thesis stated in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And there, let me remind you, the apostle says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Did you notice already at the beginning the reference to the Jews? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. I suggest the connection between this section and the previous one is a most intimate one. It is not that Paul has finished something and takes up something quite different. Again, that's what I would call the popular view. But Lloyd-Jones says, this section to me follows logically from the previous one. Indeed, this section is inevitable. Such that if we understand what Paul has been saying, we will understand perfectly well why he goes on to say what he says in those chapters. The correct view, then, in my estimation, takes into account Paul's statement at the beginning in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he not only states the gospel as salvation to all who believe, but he states it in terms of God's worldwide program to the Jew first, also to the Greek. 
You see, already at the beginning, the question of the Jews is raised, a question which he answers at last in chapters 9 and 11. Obviously, this cannot be a secondary question given its place in the beginning. Beyond that, so we've looked at the beginning of that major section, the end of chapter 8, as you know, Paul states the purpose of God, something which cannot be thwarted, uh, verses 28 to the end of the chapter. That's all that we've been considering in uh, the previous weeks. What is it that gives us such confidence and certainty and assurance? It is the purpose of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so on. All things work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, what does that have to do with what he's saying in chapters 9 through 11? Why would that be relevant here? As a consideration which causes this question to be answered in chapters 9 through 11. Because of what he said at the beginning of in chapter 1. Salvation is to the Jew first, then to the Greek. The priority of the Jews in salvation obviously raises the question of why the Jews have not believed. Paul is saying that salvation has come to the Gentiles. It's come to us. Praise God. Wait a second, Paul. You said to the Jew first. And yet... Here the Jews are, in in his own day, all the way up to the present, rejecting the Messiah. Ever since Jesus came into the world. And yet you claim strangely that salvation is to the Jew first. And you also say that God's purpose cannot be thwarted. Does it not seem as though God's purpose with respect to his people is being thwarted? As though God has forsaken His people of old. And so Israel's unbelief seemed to refute these two major assertions. One, salvation was for the Jews first. And two, God's purpose in salvation cannot fail. John Murray puts it like this. It is this priority that appears to be contradicted by the large scale unbelief and apostasy of Israel. And so Paul addresses This question in its most natural place, having triumphed, having gloried in God's purpose, having stated it as something that is invincible at the end of chapter eight. He feels and I feel along with him that we must now address the most obvious question. What about the Jews? If you look at verses like chapter nine, verse six, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Uh, Chapter Uh, 9 verse 11, he says that the purpose of God according to election might stand or chapter 11 verse 2. Let's see. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Remember chapter 8 verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, God hasn't cast away his people whom he foreknew. It's clear from those verses and, and frankly from the whole of the section that that is the way Paul is framing the issues with respect to the purpose of God and the priority of the Jews. What are the Jews? And may I confess again here, as I began to do a moment ago, that having completed chapter eight, this was the main question left in my mind. Wait a second, Paul. What about the whole of the Old Testament? Are you saying that Paul went all the way or God, excuse me, went all the way with the Jews and then he simply forgot them and he cast them off? That all that he said to them was not true. 
What about God's purpose to the Jews when he pledged himself to them throughout the whole of the Old Testament? To quote Murray once more, he says, chapters 9 through 11, deal with questions so germane to the grand theme of this epistle and urgently pressing upon the mind of intelligent readers. In other words, I'm saying, if you have been following the argument closely, this is the most obvious question you will have. It's the thing you'll want to know. What about the Jews? Or I could put it more broadly. What about the Old Testament? What about God's purpose in the Old Testament? And so the master theme is that of God's purpose, stated in chapter 8, now elaborated in chapters 9 through 11. What of God's purpose with respect to his people in the Old Testament, verses 4 and 5, who are, Israel, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, giving of the law, uh, the, the service of God, the promises, and so on. What of them? We could say this is appalling biblical theology. Chapters 9 through 11. Again, his interest is not just the New Testament. It is equally in the Old Testament and its people and the promises made there. Remember at the same time that this was a major attack against Christianity. We'll find it in in Acts. We find it in Romans. Paul was a Jew. He was addressing the Jews. He was refuting their errors. Uh, So much of that we will see in the sermons to come. Or we could look at it in still another way. In chapter 8, uh, verse 28, those uh, who are called according to purpose, those who love God, all things work together for good. Paul, uh, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and so on. Paul is speaking of the individual, the salvation of the individual, what we call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul is taking a global or a historical perspective. Salvation is as wide as the world. And it is as long going back and going forward as the history of the world. He is taking a more general view of salvation, not as comprised of individuals only, but of nations, of the whole world, of the whole of history. He's contemplating the history of salvation from the the inception of Israel's existence up to the present and beyond to the time when the fullness of Israel is achieved, chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, He's giving us, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the overall picture of salvation. Let me give you an outline as a second point, having stated the purpose, a second point, outline of the chapters, the unfolding argument. In very broad strokes, chapter 9 deals with the question of whether God's purpose has failed with respect to the Jews. Chapter 10 is a restatement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the context of Israel's unbelief. And chapter 11 concerns the restoration of Israel. Let me give you a more detailed outline. uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Paul tells us how he felt about his kinsmen. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. It's noteworthy, by the way, that he begins each section that way. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite. 
of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Paul is, is preaching, you might say, in the most personal way that you will find in any of his letters. I'm one of them, he says. My heart goes out for them or to them. I have a burden for the Jews, he could say. My kinsmen. Chapter 9, verses, I, I, I long for their salvation. Let me be clear, that was his burden. I long that they might be saved. Chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he describes the Jews, that is, those in question. What was true of them? Well, they're Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall and eternally blessed, or the eternally blessed God. Amen. But then, having stated as a kind of introduction, those things in chapter 9, verse 6 through 13, he gets to the heart of the matter. In verse 6, he says, this is a kind of master principle. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is an important principle that will be a, a guiding principle throughout our exposition of these chapters, that there are two meanings to Israel. There is Israel according to the flesh, and then there is spiritual Israel. There are the children of, of uh, the flesh, and then the children of promise. And these two categories uh, exist within, uh, I could put it this way, there are, uh, they both consist under the umbrella of Israel. In another verse, Paul says, there is the elect, and then there's the rest. That, I think that's chapter 11, verse 12. He's talking about two categories under the, the major category of Israel. You have the nation of Israel. Some are saved, some aren't. Some are elect, some aren't. That's the point. Not all are Israel who are of Israel. The children of the flesh, the children of God, verse 8. And seeing this, we can say the word of God is not failed, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Equally, we can say that the purpose of God according to election stands. It has not been thwarted, verse 11. That the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. Next, in chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, he asked the question, is there any unrighteousness with God? In other words, the whole question of theodicy comes in here. The justice and the ways of God, which he answers by quoting Moses in the Old Testament. If of the Jews God selected some and rejected the others, well... This is what God has been doing all along. It's even what he said in the Old Testament. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll harden whom I will harden. That's a principle you find in the Old Testament. Is there any unrighteous in God? No, there isn't. Well, why does he still find fault? Chapter 9, verse 19 through 24. If it is not according to man who wills, but God who calls. Why does he find fault with those who reject him since they are bound over to unbelief by his own sovereign will? Well, chapter 9, verse 20 is one of the most stinging answers that has ever been given in the history of the church. Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? I can think of another stinging answer. Uh, Luther liked to quote Augustine when people ask this question, why does he still find fault? Where is the justice of God? Luther, quoting Augustine, said, God made hell for people who ask such questions. Well, obviously, that was meant to be a joke, and thank you, some of you, for laughing. Nevertheless, it was Augustine's way, it was Luther's way of shutting down the conversation right there. 
You are in no position, O man, to question God, uh, above all his justice, as though he sits, uh, as though you sit at the bar of his justice and he beneath you, as though he is answerable to you. The question, to ask the question is to sin. It is to place God beneath you. It is to imagine that God is answerable to you. Do you remember Job himself reflecting upon this at times? Oh, that he were a man that I could question him. But, but alas, he's not. He's God. Who am I to question him? You see, you don't just shut down the conversation or the question once it's been asked. You have to do it to yourself. You have to say, wait a second. I'm man. He's God. I'm the clay. He's the potter. He is the all righteous. He's the judge. He's God. And it is always sinful to imagine that he is on a par, a par with us or worse, that he is beneath us. Who are you, old man, to ask such a question? And he supports this in 925 through 29 with citations of the Old Testament. He loves to do that just to show what he's saying is nothing new. This is the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. And he summarizes that chapter by stating this. What shall we say then that the Gentiles are in verse 30, but Israel is out, verse 31. Bringing him in chapter 10, the beginning to state the tragedy of Israel's unbelief. I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of of God. There again is the master theme of the epistle in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed. It was revealed unto the Jews and they rejected it in the person of Christ, leading him in chapter 10, verses 4 through 11, to restate the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We are justified by faith alone. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true today. But why would that come in here again in chapter 10? Because it proves, chapter 10, verses 12 through 17, that God is the God of all who call on him, Jew and Gentile, all who have faith, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The tragedy of Israel was her unbelief. She did not call upon the Lord, even as the Gentiles are being grafted in. Why? Because they called upon the name of the Lord. He, he, he sums it up. He closes out his statement with quotations again from the Old Testament. But to Israel, he says, verse 21, all day long, I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Remember, Stephen preaching the same thing. You always disbelieved. You always disobeyed. This unbelief of Israel was nothing new. Well, seeing that in chapter 11, beginning in verses 1 through 6, Paul then says this. God has not cast away his people. He puts it in terms of a question. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And there in those verses... He describes the remnant according to grace, just as there's always been, just as there was in the days of Elijah, he says. I have reserved for myself 7000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, even so, verse five, 
at the present time. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace and so on. There is a remnant, he says, according to grace. Among who? Among the Jews. There are still, even now, as there have always been, a number of Jews who have believed. Though in mass they have rejected their Savior. Verses 7 through 10 next in chapter 11. Let me say, admittedly, from here on things get difficult. The disagreements uh, between commentators, between theologians, even in the same camp, emerge. But let me try to summarize the arguments from my perspective. First, he says, not all Israel, but the elect. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. That is, within the broader umbrella of Israel, there are the elect, and then there are the rest. The elect are saved, the rest are blinded. Again, the same distinction we found between two Israels at the beginning of chapter 9. Not all are Israel who are of Israel. There is spiritual Israel. There is natural Israel. In verses 11 through 24, the purpose of Israel's rejection by God is stated. One, that it would be riches to the world as the Gentiles are grafted in. The rejection of the Jews meant that the Gentiles were able to come in. Number two, to provoke the Israelites to jealousy so that they might come in again. All of this he states in the first two verses of that section. Again, verses 11 through 24. Just verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world... And their failure riches for the Gentiles. How much more their fullness. And then in verses 25 through 32. Paul elaborates on the purpose of God. Looking forward to Israel's future restoration. Presently the Gentiles. Paul says are being grafted in. Even as the natural branches. The Jews are being rejected. But Paul speaks of two things with respect to Israel. In her rejection, one, for the present, her her preservation, she is preserved by means of a remnant. But two, well, so that uh, let me say one more thing about that, so that even though she is rejected, her rejection is not complete. There is still a remnant. Number two, there is there will be a future restoration of Israel itself so that her rejection is not final either. It is not complete It is not final. The engrafting back of the natural branches into the tree, which is the church, is assured. Jews are blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Verse 25. But her blinding is not complete, nor is it final. In time, the natural branches will be grafted in again. Verses 23 and 24. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And if they're being, verse 15, cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? How much blessing came to us by the rejection? How much more by their future acceptance? And in this way, 
This is the great question. What does Paul mean when he says as well? In this way, all Israel will be saved. Verse 26. And we will uh, expound that in due time. But it's just this thought that he elaborates in verses 28 and following. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And they also, he says, may obtain mercy at the end of verse 31. What he is articulating here in verses 25 to the end, this is the mystery of Israel. It's the thing about which many are ignorant. It's it's the thing about which I am ignorant. I admit that. I'm still learning. I'm I'm along with you. I'm the student. I'm learning. The, The idea is difficult to grasp. It's difficult to articulate. I assure you, in everything that I'm saying, lest you are nervous at the moment, I have not become a dispensationalist. I'm not arguing for anything like the restoration of Israel such that you find in the Old Testament, the old covenant being restored in Israel. But I am suggesting, and here is the mystery of Israel, I am suggesting that the church must look forward to the future, the future grafting in of the Jews. Just as she has been rejected for the present, so she will be accepted again. And here I am following Murray, I'm following Lloyd-Jones, as well as most major reform thinkers and commentators before what I consider to be an unfortunate departure from this view in the 20th century and which I will elaborate and interact with in future sermons. The end, it is all ended by what he says in 33 through 36. I've already read it. It ends on a note of wonder and praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God and so on. Let me try to conclude uh, by stating four major themes and then two points of application. The first major theme is the interplay of Jews and Gentiles in the plan of God. Already stated in chapter 1, verse 16, the, the gospel is for the Jew first, then for the Greek. And this is what he elaborates in chapters 9 through 11. It's a very broad theme, but we need to see God's plan for the Jews. Equally, we need to see God's plan for the Gentiles. But even beyond that, and here's the whole glory of what Paul is saying, we need to see the interplay of the two, the way in God's plan and in history the two play off one another in accomplishing God's grand design for the church. Ultimately filling us, I hope, with a sense of wonder at God's design as well as a total confidence in his plan being executed. All Israel shall be saved. Number two, the doctrine of the remnant of spiritual Israel, something you will find in the Old Testament, as Paul proves in chapters nine and eleven, something which explains why unbelief does nothing to thwart God's purpose for those who are saved will always be few, but their salvation is certain. The doctrine of the remnant. Number three, that there is and always has been only one way of salvation. In the Old Testament and in the New. That is how chapter 10 fits into the, into the discussion. The Old Testament was not a way of works. Justification by faith is how the Old Testament saints were saved. And because they did not and do not have faith, that is why at present they are not saved. That's why they're not in the church. Number four, the importance of the Old Testament to the New. 
how God's plan formed in the Old Testament is still being carried out. God hasn't forgotten about the Old Testament, neither should you. This is a point of supreme importance, and and we will begin to see how important it is in in verses 1 through 5 in the coming sermons. The importance of the Old Testament, what God said there, what he promised there, this informs our whole view of history and of salvation. There is not a single promise, not a single purpose that God stated in the Old Testament that he's gone back on. So that Paul is saying, the truth is, God's purpose for Israel is not undone by her present unbelief, even today. His purpose for Israel, pledged in the Old Testament, is being realized and will be realized. And what that purpose is, you will have to give me time to develop in the coming sermons. Application. First, does all this talk of God's purpose make you want to know more? Do you love to hear of all God's saving purposes and designs, not only for you, but for all the elect, for all Israel, for all the church, in all ages, and in all nations? If not, and and by the way, when you say all nations, that includes the Jews. If not, I can't see how you could ever read your Bible with interest. Number two. Are you brought with such a view of things to praise him? You see, that's the point I've been getting at all along. I began with it, so let me end with it. Do you see the gospel as the unfolding of a mystery and look on it with wonder and praise and adoration? You see, this is the real practical test of all these chapters and our understanding of them. So often, chapters 9 through 11 become the source of contention And disputing within the church and among Christians. And dare I say of theological pride. Hence Paul's warning. I'll read again from chapter 8. Or excuse me. Chapter 11 verse 18. Do not boast against the branches. But if you boast. Remember that you do not support the root. But the root supports you. And on he goes. That's the danger. The danger of theological pride. And this was the major practical concern of the apostle in writing these things, not merely to understand the mystery, but to see what it leads to, to warn against pride. Look at Paul here. Is he puffed up with pride or is he laid in the dust? He's laid in the dust. And his high theology passes into unmatched doxology. Who can comprehend the mind of God, he says, his saving purposes? Who has known or understood? You see, in a sense, Even though Paul is unfolding the mystery for us to behold, we are not meant to understand them, not fully, but we are meant to praise the Lord. We are meant to adore the greatness of his majesty. And is that what you find in your hearts even now, even as we've just begun to consider these things? Are you filled with a sense of wonder, of adoration and of praise? Do you have, well, as we heard in Sunday school, do you find that you're becoming smaller and he's becoming greater? That's the test. Are you puffed up with pride or are you laid in the dust? Are you made to praise him as the Apostle Paul does? Do you see his salvation, his plan, his purpose, his design as something immeasurably greater than yourselves? Can you say along with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God? How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. 
For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, I say that we might be able to do so even now. And if not, at least once we are done, once we've finished. And so as I close, I say this. May God give us grace, as Paul says in chapter 11, verse 25, not to be ignorant of the mystery, not to be wise in our own conceits or in our own eyes, but to be laid low as the mystery now is being revealed to us. And by faith, may we may we be led to praise him. Amen. Let us come to the table together.